Welcome to Inside the Vault, the payment security podcast, a show from Very Good Security. This is a show for fintech builders and leaders looking for a deep dive into the intersection of payments and data security. You're about to hear a conversation around payments, fintech, data security, and more. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone. I'm Amanda Carruccio, the Director of Partnerships at Very Good Security. And today we are very excited to have Bill Fox on Inside the Vault. Bill is the Chief Commercial Officer at Finexio, and prior to Finexio, Bill led global sales and BD teams at companies including LexisNexis, Change Healthcare, and MarkLogic. Bill was also the Deputy Chief of Economic and Cybercrime at the Philadelphia DA's office. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Amanda. Happy to be here. Looking forward to the discussion. Awesome. So, I think you actually had a very unique journey into payments. You started off at a law firm, in the DA's office, then healthcare, now B2B payments. Can you walk us through a little bit of what that journey was like and maybe some lessons you took from fighting cybercrime and being in the healthcare space as applicable learnings to the payment space? Sure. You know, when I think about it, it all makes a lot of sense having gone through it, but I I do get that reaction sometimes. So when I was... uh, at a private law firm, I did a lot of fraud work, almost exclusively fraud work defending insurance companies. So I was in court every day. We didn't offer anything on those cases. And I was turning a lot of those cases over to the prosecutor's office. So they had said, hey, anytime you want to come down and wear the white hat, just let us know. So eventually I took them up on that and became deputy chief of economic and cybercrime. And I think we were the first cybercrime unit in any district attorney's office in the country. That was in Philadelphia. And then I got cross-designated over to the U.S. attorney's office as well. And we, you know, with a focus on economic and cybercrime. So got very deeply into the financial system, how people kite checks, how people fake websites and around Christmas time and have you order stuff and then disappear. I had Patriot Act signing authority. So that got me into sort of the back end of how the internet worked and piercing corporate veils and being able back then in the day, you could get like a Yahoo account. It was an anonymous ISP, but we could get through that using the Patriot Act and understand who was actually posting things and setting up websites. So it was a great education in sort of how all that worked. And then what happened was we were, uh, the Philadelphia office was the U.S. of the U.S. attorney was really kind of like the healthcare office for the country, healthcare fraud office. And uh, the guy who was running all, all that went on to become the Medicaid inspector general of New York after he left the office. But since we were doing that, when Part D passed the, phar- the Pharmaceutical Drug Benefit Act as part of the ACA, CMS let out a contract, a huge contract to do pharma fraud detection in that program. And I got two calls the next day (laughs) to get recruited out of the office because there weren't that many people in the country that were kind of focusing on that and doing that. So I left the private sector, I left the public sector about 15 years ago and uh, went into healthcare fraud and economic crime and healthcare. What happened was I went to a company eventually then called MDON, now called Change Healthcare, and like half the claims made in healthcare, you go to the doctor, 
doctor types his bill into a computer, it doesn't go to the insurance company. It goes to this company. And they review that bill and they make sure it's in the right form. If not, they send it back. And then it goes on to the payer. And then the payer sends the payment back through. So we were doing about $100 billion in payments. And we had been taken private by Blackstone a couple weeks earlier before I came in as SVP of Business Development. So we were very focused on the network that we had and what we would be able to do with that incredible network and the amount of payments we were making. So we really dove deep into payments and I was working very closely with a VP for MasterCard who is actually the CEO of the company I'm at now. So he came on to be our payments leader. Our chief product and strategy officer here at Finexio was also at MDON at the time. And he was sort of the GM of the payments group. And the three of us were a team and were looking to do innovative things in healthcare payments. And at the same time, I was still very involved on the fraud side. I was the head of the HIMSS Revenue Cycle Management Task Force for a time and advising the National Healthcare and Fraud Association. So that that stayed there, but we were really getting deep into the payment side. And what we saw there, which is relevant to coming when we get to the end, is just how broken and ineffective, inefficient, costly that whole system was. And I think we all had that feeling like this could be fixed but you know, we weren't able to do everything we wanted to do there, but we did have a couple innovative products that moved a lot of payments off of check and, and onto digital payments. So I left there and I left, spent the last seven years at two unicorn technology companies where I increasingly sort of had larger and larger sales teams. The CEO of Finexio, Ernest Rolfs, and I had remained friends this whole time. And about a year ago, I, we were talking and I said, yeah, I think I'm going to make a move. And it was just the right time to come on to Finexio. We've just closed a significant B round, announcements to come later on in the month or next month, I guess. But, you know, we're really, we're growing 200% a year. It's, it's unbelievable growth. So I was happy to come in and lead up the, the sales function here at Finexio. So, you know, there's always been this thread of how do economic systems work? How do we prevent fraud? How is the increasing movement to digital? How does that affect both efficiency, but as well as fraud and, and attack surfaces and stuff like that theme going on, even from when I was in private practice. That was fascinating how connected it was, because I will say it, taking everything at face value, having you do the voiceover is super helpful to see how they all kind of tie together. And maybe can I double click at the, at the beginning in terms of fighting cybercrime are there any kind of war stories when you think back on that time in your career that you could share? Yeah, I, I think what's so amazing is how quickly cybercrime has grown and become more sophisticated. When I started doing it, this would be over 20 years ago. One of the first cases that I did, we got a call from what was then the Philadelphia Inquirer, the newspaper. And they had a pretty controversial editorial writer 
and used to write about his girlfriend sometimes, he started getting some horrific threats over email about things that this person was going to do to him and do to his girlfriend. They had his address in it, different things. So we're going to investigate this. By total coincidence, the guy that sat next to me all through law school, my name is Bill Fox, his name was Robert Fox, no relation, was the general counsel for the inquiry. <laughs> so we had a discussion, you know, how are we going to do this? So we use our authority, we get a subpoena, and we find out the ISP of the computer that is sending these threats, and it's coming from the Philadelphia library system. Well, that's good. That's going to be easy to work with. We find the computer. We stick a detective there. We wait for the person to come up. Except that the Philadelphia library system, as all library systems have to, they have to filter this through a filter that makes sure that nobody can get on porn websites and inappropriate websites and people aren't seeing things they don't want to see. And they were f taking all their 600 computers through that one ISP. So there goes that. They're all over the city of Philadelphia and however many public libraries are, 50, 100, who knows. So we have to think of another way to do this. So what we ended up doing was getting sort of a call chain where when the inquirer guy would get the threat, he would call it in and we would shut down the computer system at the Philadelphia library and go back through the log and find it. And when we did that, I think four times it took, there was only one, and you have to have a library card to log on. So we knew everybody who was in the library at that time. And after about four, there was only one person who was in the library at all four of those times. So we sent detectives over to sit at the giant Philadelphia Public Library, the huge one that was right across the street from the DA's office almost. And sure enough, this guy shows up and sits down and they talk to him and they're like, do you know anything about this? And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's me. Because I don't mean anything by it. You know, I'm, I'm not going to do anything. And they're kind of making this like, oh, my boss sent me over here on this like crap duty. You know, don't worry about it. So they came back to the office and I was like, so he's in the holding cell? And they were like, no, because as economic crime prosecutors and defense, we didn't arrest people on the street. We got subpoenas and judges signed them and we called their lawyers. And I was like, you better go over there and hope he didn't leave yet. So they bring him back in. And it turns out, as I, I believe, that he was the first person jailed in Pennsylvania for making threats that were not carried out. He did not want to plead guilty. He was challenged and, and we tried to work something out, but we couldn't. But that was literally how we were doing cyber investigations at that time. To understand, you know, I just left a, a, an artificial intelligence company. I mean, to understand the sophistication of cybercrime prevention now and trying to keep up with, you know, one of the things I've always said is that, you know, we all have like real jobs and then we're trying to defend against cybercrime, whereas the cybercrime, well, that is their job. So to try to keep up with the sophistication of, of the crimes that are going on, it's just unbelievable how much that's changed in such a short period of time because we were back in the Wild West thinking that this is what cybercrime was and 
no one was, I can guarantee you that no one was thinking at that time, you know, about nation state threats and corporate espionage and things like the things that are going on now. Yeah. And now shifting back entirely to Finexio, I'd love to, to understand what do you think are some of the impediments to businesses adopting electronic B2B payments? It seems like there's still a lot of hesitancy. So what do you, what do you think, what do you think those main impediments are? I think that it's a part of the company that traditionally has been like kind of off in the corner. Like everybody has to pay the bills, but it's not sexy. So, you know, there's a lot of attention to paid to strategy and technology and marketing and all these things. And then this is back over here. And, you know, bills are getting paid and it's not something that rises to the top. And, and a lot of the new, newer digital technologies are very new. So if you have a very traditional AP department, you know, the CFO is kind of used to how that gets done. It's not really considered revenue generating. It's obviously a cost center. Traditionally, we're changing that, but traditionally AP payments are, are a cost center. So it's really mostly sort of a getting past that legacy inertia to change. And you do still find that some people you know, even though we have an extremely high rate of conversion from check to virtual card at Finexio, there are those people that are like, oh, no, you know, I want to hold the check. And they have this illusion that because, like, the checkbook sits on their desk and they're signing every check that goes out, that somehow that's, like, really secure and they know what's going on. When, in fact, the check is 33 times, not percent, 33 times more likely to be involved in, in fraud than a virtual card is. So they're exactly wrong about that. And, you know, we, we saw this in the data when I was at a database company. You know, everybody had their own little data warehouse that they wanted to keep their data in. And when the CIO would say, oh, we're going to put it all in a central place, they're like, well, no, that's not Well, it's going to be 10 times more secure than your data warehouse that nobody knows what's in there, what the security is. So I think it's really what we're up against is really sort of just legacy inertia. And, but once we have that initial discussion, it goes pretty quickly usually. You know, I, I even had a discussion yesterday with a, with a customer where they were kind of saying, just, I just am doubting that you can get these like mom and pop shops that we pay to convert to electronic payments and like, but we're doing it at scale. She's like, I know you've converted thousands of them. I'm like, actually tens of thousands. So, you know, it's just kind of getting them over this very, very traditional legacy part of the company that's been highly manual, getting them to understand how broken it is. Yeah. So education is a big part of your job still. Yes, it is. Yeah. And okay. 33 times more likely to be fraudulent. What are, like, can we get really specific about it? Like, what are the most frequent types or attempted types of fraudulent activity as it pertains to checks or any other types of legacy B2B payments? Yeah, so, so I'll back into that with another kind of war story from when I was a prosecutor. I used to probably get 
10 lawyers or doctors a year that would call me, or maybe they might have called the DA first and she sent them over to me. And they're like, I think my fill-in-the-blank office manager, accountant, CFO is, is stealing money from me, but I'm not sure. And when we would, you know, we would say, good, here's the name of a good forensic accountant. They'll do a report and then you can come back because we're not going to look at your 42 boxes of files and figure it out for you. When they would come back in and we get that person, you know, they usually didn't want it to be prosecuted. They actually wanted it to be taken care of quietly. So we'd get that accountant or, or whoever it was, office manager in who showed up to work one day in a, you know, Yukon Denali with great wheels. And the person was like, I'm not paying enough for them to have a hundred thousand dollar car. Fraud is a crime of opportunity. And that opportunity runs across kind of well, multiple vectors, but say two main vectors. So one, almost always the first incident was completely opportunistic. So you got this office manager, you're getting paid with checks, you're paying with checks she has the checkbook. She's probably signing the checks with your name for you, which is all good and everything goes. And then she's cleaning her desk one day or he's cleaning his desk one day. And up, oh, look, there's a check from six months ago that was like underneath the pencil holder and never got deposited. It's like, well, nobody, that's, nobody's thinking about that check. Nobody's looking for it. You know, we're, we've moved on. I bet you I could just sign that over to myself and go cash it. So the opportunity is, is that way. And now the other opportunity you could have check is because you can sign it over to yourself and go cash it. Now, also with a check, when you think about the delta between fraud on checks and fraud on, say, V-card, check has all your banking information on it. So that check could be counterfeited with proper bank account information. And then I can write myself a check and go to the bank and cash it. So because it has the bank account on uh, information on it and because it's going through the highly secure U.S. mail system, and I posted on LinkedIn a few weeks ago, this is literal truth. I was in New York on a business trip. I was walking to the gym early in the morning, and there was a giant pile of hundreds of letters in the middle of the street in Soho. Like, I don't know how they got there. But I took a picture of it and posted it on LinkedIn, still sending checks through the mail. So you've got this perfect storm of your bank account information. So it's a written document. It can be counterfeited. And now it goes off through the U.S. mail and a hundred people touch it on its journey through there versus, you know, you get an email with a 16-digit code that has no bank account information and you go click and click and it's in your bank. So... There's, there's multiple factors there around why checks are so vulnerable and so easy that you don't need a sophisticated cyber fraud scheme to commit economic crime with checks. Yeah. And aside from switching from checks to, to V cards, any other sort of fraud mitigating tactics that you think businesses should take in terms of fighting B2B payments fraud? Sure. I mean, we always think about this sort of in the in the fraud realm as sort of attack surface. Like what's what's your attack surface that you're vulnerable to? And one of the cool things about digital payments is it's one of the few areas where you can save costs, increase efficiency, and 
reduce your attack surface all at the same time. Because I think, again, many people think like, oh, yeah, I want to do better to protect against cybercrime and it's expensive and I have to hire this company and they're going to do all these things. And, you know, it, it's, it's like a big, they see it as another big, huge project that they don't want to do. With digitizing payments, there's also the software aspect of it, and that's a huge part of what we do at Finexio, is we're exposing, we're giving companies the ability both on the payer side, the, the, the client who's paying, as well as on the suppliers who are getting paid, to go into this portal and track all this information. You know, say a company starts with us in their 80% check and 10% ACH and 10% card or something like that. One thing that's going to happen is we're going to take a number of those people, help them get a number of those people that are on check on the card. There's going to be another significant portion of those people that are on check that are going to go to the ACH. So just in that conversion, there's going to be a tremendous lessening, lessening of the attack you know, the threat surface because of that. Now, they're still going to be paying some people by checks, but also they're outsourcing the whole service. So there's less people at their organization now actually touching the actual payment because we're going to be printing and mailing the checks and we have heavy-duty security in place and we're going to be doing all that other, you know, the OFAC and KYC and all those kind of things that you have to do post-pay for the checks. So that's not their business. So they're probably not doing a great job because that's not where their focus is. Their focus is on selling whatever they sell or delivering healthcare at a hospital or building buildings at a construction company or whatever it is. So now they're outsourcing that to an organization that, that is their business. So the combination of having that software platform where you can, where the supplier, instead of calling you and being like, where's my check? They just go on a portal and they can see a copy of the check that was sent and what date it was sent on. And then they can guess when the U.S. mail will deliver it. But in the case of an ACH, they can actually see an audit trail. So they can, they can track that much more effectively. And then you, as the CFO or the head of AP or the VP of Finance or whoever it is at the organization, have insight into generally those people that we speak to have never seen anything laid their payments landscape laid out like this and they can see payments that are aging and why are they just sitting over there and you know we're taking whereas they might not be doing this you know we're my team is always looking at that and if there's four outstanding checks for 90 days at one organization, we're going to call the, them and say, hey, you've got these four huge checks out here. Would this be a good opportunity for you to switch to an electronic payment method? And you know, the answers are literally like, oh, well, Bob got COVID and he's been out for three weeks, so nobody checked that. We're like, well, that's probably not a great position to be in. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah. How does that work? And that's a five-minute conversation. Did you guys notice, like, Kind of speaking about COVID and the pandemic, did you guys notice, I know for consumer payments, uptick in Apple Pay and Venmo sort of shifting to more electronic. Did you guys notice the same thing on the B2B side? It was huge for us. Yeah. Because think about this. So COVID hits. Now, 
someone is going into a closed company, picking up the checkbook, writing checks. Those checks are being FedExed over to the CFO. He's signing them. He's FedExing them back to them. Then that person is going to the post office with the mask on and mailing them out. And then a thousand vendors have to go into their office that's closed, pick up that check. And I don't know if you remember, but like going to the bank then was like you needed like an appointment basically to go to the bank. Banks weren't open. You had to like make an appointment. There, I mean, it really, in a way that you could never do in a sales pitch or a webinar, like this light went on like, this is really dumb. And we we're all hoping it never happens again, but it could. So yeah, it, it, it really shined a light on how antiquated this system was. It's so easy to get out of it that we still do talk about that. And a lot of companies that we talk to do say, you know, like, yeah, you know, we, we definitely had it on our roadmap since that happened to like get out from under this highly manual system that we have. And, and there's other factors from COVID like the great resignation. So if I'm at a company and I'm lucky enough to be growing, I can't think to myself, oh, I'll just go hire four more people for the AP department. They're not there to hire. And then the other part of the great resignation is those AP people, if they are doing boring, repetitive work, they're going to quit eventually. So this allows you, you know, it's not generally about, usually these departments are pretty lean anyway. So we do take like up to 85% of the time associated, certainly with the manual part of this, but they can be pointed toward much more productive, strategic, tactic or tactical kind of things rather than, oh, go back in that room. And I mean, you know, we were talking to a hospital, $500 million revenue hospital, 104 million in AP spend, like a hundred million of that's unchecked. So they have four people, their whole job is like they sit and write checks all day. Like maybe that was okay like 10 years ago, but now that's not a job that most people want to have. And they weren't talking about, you know, letting them go. They're talking about, yeah, there's 10 other things they could be doing if they didn't have to do that. It's interesting. We we kind of automate the same percentage for, for PCI compliance and for security. So I think it's not so much that the audit teams before, the compliance teams before, it's not so much about replacing their job, but really using them in a way where it's more beneficial to the company as well. I have three quick rapid fire questions to wrap us up. First one is last TV show that you watched. Chef's Table. Okay. <laughs> nice. About pizza. Um, <laughs> favorite book you've ever read? Uh, I'll say The Brothers Karamazov. Okay. And favorite part of your job? Talking to customers. You know, I've been, I've been sort of convincing people my whole career, whether I was a trial attorney or, or selling or running sales teams. So, you know, I love getting on with customers and helping them to understand how much this can help them and how easy it is and getting over those kinds of objections and blockers that they have to this because it's just going to free up so much time. And then because of revenue share on electronic payments, that, that, co that manual cost center becomes a really efficient potential revenue driver, which is 
it's really fun to have that conversation. Sounds like you're in the right role as the CCO <laughs> <Yes>. then. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for joining us today. Really enjoyed the conversation and especially learning more about your background and how it all actually does neatly tie together. Absolutely. <laughs> so for everyone that's listening, uh, thanks for tuning in. You can always drop us a line at pod at verygoodsecurity.com if you have any suggestions for future episodes. And until next time, thanks. Industry-leading companies, from startups to the Fortune 500, use VGS to protect the collection, storage, and exchange of sensitive payments data while maximizing its utility. With the VGS Zero Data approach to handling sensitive data, companies can achieve PCI DSS compliance and take control of their payment stack. To learn more, visit verygoodsecurity.com. You've been listening to Inside the Vault, the payment security podcast, a show from Very Good Security. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us to keep delivering the latest from the realms of payments and data security. Thanks for listening. Until next time.